Hey everybody and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. My name is Lena Abajemra and I'm your host. It is uh, great to have you back with us if you've been here before and if you're new, welcome. We're glad that you checked in with us. This is a place where we share biblical truth for everyday life. Our hope is that you grow in the knowledge of God and that you continue to stand strong in a world that is shaken. And so this summer we are running a teaching series that I've put together called the Unshaken Series. It is an awesome teaching series and uh, one of the most popular teachings that I've done. It uh, focuses each week on a different Bible character, a man or woman that has stood strong in faith no matter the difficult circumstances they were in. I know that you're gonna find hope and healing with each of the weeks that will cover a different episode. And so uh, if you wanna know more about our ministry, check out livingwithpower.org. And by the way, when you land on our page, check out our speaking page. And if you are looking for a person to come and teach uh, or lead a conference at your church or uh, group gathering, then please reach out. We'd love to meet you in person. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and listen to today's teaching in the Unshaken series. We are in a series called Unshaken, Strong in Faith No Matter What, and boy, how we need it in this season of life. Tonight's teaching will be a blessing to you, I believe, no matter where you are in your life, if you're facing confusing uh, circumstances. It's from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22. This is episode 14 or lesson 14 in our series called Unshaken, Strong in Faith No Matter What. And the title of this teaching is When God's Will Becomes Confusing. So not just general confusion, but even more confusing when God's will becomes confusing. Sometimes you start off with the Lord and you have an idea of how it's going to look and you're confident in it and you're expecting great things. And then it's like God takes you on a detour. And, and, and we should be ready for it. So much of scripture talks about the detour, but yet I find in my life that I'm never ready for it. I'm always taken by surprise and I'm always like jarred, like a car that takes a quick U-turn. My mom would say, it's how you drive Lena, but it's true. It's like all of a sudden, you know, and you, and you find yourself wondering what just happened. And you're spending so much time recovering from the whiplash of that. That's where we see David today. We spent the last couple of weeks talking about King David, the first a teaching on David was so exciting. He was anointed as the next king of Israel and he was the least likely candidate, but God chose him and anointed him and he started serving in the king's court. And then last week was a high because he shows up and he brings down Goliath. And again, it's like the unlikely hero and he's small and people aren't sure what he's gonna do, but he puts his faith in the Lord and brings down Goliath. And we saw how God used the example of David to remind us of Jesus who's fighting on our behalf. This week, we're gonna see another side of David. And here he is, he's on this path, he's obedient, he's faithful, he's godly, he's anointed, he's chosen, he's everything that you would want a young man to be. And he's doing what he needs to be doing in the way that he needs to be doing it when all of a sudden everything around him seems to be falling apart. And it's easy to be confused in those moments. And so, so just to give you a little flavor, Saul is the first king of Israel. And he starts off well, but pretty quickly becomes self-centered, me-centered, uh, irreverent, uh, idolatrous, and, and abandons God. And so God removes his anointing from Saul and puts it on David. Now, now, initially, when David and Saul meet, it's sort of a happy meeting. In fact, David starts playing music for uh, the harp, not the violin, to, for, for Saul. And, 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 and then he, of course, David defeats Goliath, and Saul takes notice of David as a warrior. And in the ensuing months, several big things happen. First of all, David marries the daughter of Saul, named Michael or Michal, however you say it. And, 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 and you get a, get a feeling that they really love each other, at least at first, and, and later on the relationship becomes kind of hazy and, and difficult. But early on, 
they're sort of in love, and of course David's the hero, and so now he's not just playing music for the king, but he is actually um, the son-in-law of the king. But even more to add a dynamic, David's best friend is the son of King Saul. His name is Jonathan. And these two, the Bible tells us that their souls knit together, and they were just best friends. If you have a best friend, people who understand you, who you just don't even need to talk, you can just look at them, they understand one another. There's nothing like that sort of friendship. And so that's the relationship between David and Jonathan. This becomes critical. And Jonathan, by the way, you can spend, people have written books about Jonathan. He's a fascinating character in scripture because he is technically the rightful heir of Saul, right? He's the son of Saul. And instead of, of, of being angry about the fact that God has anointed David as king, Jonathan is humble and and surrender to God and his ways that he doesn't fight for his kingdom. He understands that God is the one who chooses kings. And so he loves and cherishes and respects David and supports him to the point where Jonathan's father, Saul, is angry at Jonathan. He's like, how can you support this boy when you're supposed to be the king? But Jonathan understands God and his ways. And so this friendship develops to the point where uh, Jonathan becomes privy to the fact that Saul wants to kill David. And at first, you know how these conversations, they talk about it and, 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 and Jonathan mentions it to David. David isn't quite convinced at first, but they, they do this thing where they're like, okay, David says to Jonathan, okay, fine, you go to the dinner. I'm not gonna show up. And, and if your dad really wants to kill me, then here's how it's gonna play out. And indeed, it becomes evident that Saul, even though his daughter is married to David, even though his son is best friends with David, even though God has anointed David, even though Samuel has anointed uh, David on behalf of the Lord, Saul is so void of the Spirit of God, so full of hate that he just is determined to kill the son of Jesse, uh, David, because he's so jealous of him and he's so angry. And so um, when David hears that, um, Jonathan warns him. He throws the arrows. There's a thing leading up to chapter 21. And now David is on the run. So here's a young man, David, who starts off convinced of God's will for his life, confident in God's will for his life, living out his anointing when all of a sudden, big detour, now he is hunted by the king. He's freaking out. You say, how badly is he freaking out? Well, that brings us uh, to chapter 21. And as usual, I'm gonna read you through the story and I'm gonna make two, three application points. And so David in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, in verse one, he came to Nob. So now he's on the run. This is not an adventure. He's not on a mission, he is running for his life because the king wants to kill him. So David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? So the priest has a sense that something is fishy. David says to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. Now, David, you're gonna see, is on a freak out path. And he doesn't even realize how freaked out he is. You're going to see it as we go through the story. Uh, it's fascinating because, because he's so blinded by his circumstances for a minute. This is the same guy who defeated Goliath, but he's so blinded by the confusion of what has happened in his life that we're going to see him deteriorate before he kind of fixes his eyes back on the Lord. And so he tells him, like, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. He lies, basically. He says, verse three, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. He's got nothing. He's running for his life. He's got no food. He's freaking out. And he says to him, like, do you have any food here? 
So the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So this is the bread that was offered as a, as a sacrifice, an offering to the Lord, and they're not supposed to eat it. But again, David is on this tangent. He's so focused on his fear that he can't see clearly. And, and by the way, yet Jesus in the New Testament defends this whole thing that happened between David and Abimelech like, to remind us that God is, it, it, I mean, the law is not placed to bind us so much, but, uh, but, but he supports them because there's a point for the law. And so here in this circumstance, anyway, the, the bread is given to David and David eats the bread, takes it with him. And the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord. And then a certain man, verse seven of the servants of Saul was there that day. Now, this guy's name is Doeg the Edomite, that he becomes critical because he shows back up in the next chapter. And he's the chief of Saul's herdsmen. I don't know why he was there, but he happened to be there. So David says to Ahimelech in verse 8, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? Here's a warrior. He doesn't even have a sword because he's on the run. And he says, For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there's none like that. Give it to me. And so, so remember, this is the same David who a couple of chapters ago went to fight Goliath and they were going to give him an armor. And he says, I don't need the armor. I want God's armor. Okay. And this should encourage you, Christian, because how many of us have like these highs in our Christian walk and then things don't happen like we want them to. God's will becomes confusing and our temptation like David is to freak out and fall off this proverbial cliff. And, 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 and you're going to see how God continues to use David. You're going to see God's grace through this demise of faith in this moment. And, uh, and you say, where did David flee? Well, in verse 10, it says, David ro arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ashish, the king of Gath. And that's where Goliath was from. So he goes and hides in enemy land. And the servants of Ashish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So David now hears what they're saying about him. So the people in this land where he's hiding from Saul recognize him and they're afraid of him. And they're kind of like going, man, he's the enemy. What's he doing here? And he's the one who kills 10,000. And so they're freaking out. And so David sees where their thinking is going and he knows that they're planning on possibly retaliating. And so what does he do? It says, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Asher, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Asha said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come to my house? And so David departed from there in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. And we're going to read just a few verses here. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. That cave is a, is a critical cave. I'm going to give you some cross-references in a minute. A lot of good happens in a cave. You might wonder, man, what, what good can happen in a cave? A lot of good. Sometimes God gets us to a cave because he needs to focus us and isolate us from everyone and everything so that he can finally get our attention. So David is on the spiral down. God's will is confusing. It is nothing like what he thought it would be at the beginning. And God now hides him in a cave. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to meet him, or to him. Verse 2, and everyone who was, listen to this, this is the motley crew that David accumulates. It says, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul, 
gathered to him, to David, and he became commander over them. It's like in high school or, or junior high, not high school, when you had these like teams where you pick one person, the other team, dodgeball, like you were, were you the first person picked? I was not. I was kind of in the low end of the picking. The people that no one wants, that's who's coming to David to be his little crew. And he's the, their commander. It's almost ironic, right? Um, and there were with him about 400 men. So David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you. Till, and this is a critical sentence to underline. I always give you a heads up what to underline. Until I know what God will do for me. Until I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. By the way, the Moabites, remember uh, Ruth, who married Boaz, and they had their grandson, Jesse. Remember, Ruth was the Moabite. Jesse was the father of David. So he went and hid in the area of his mother's, um, uh, or uh, his dad's uh, kin, uh, great-grandfathers, whatever. And they stayed, so he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now, uh, this is incredibly, uh, th th those verses in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through uh, 6 or 5 or so are some of my favorite verses. Because there's a story of a man who was so confident of God's will for his life until everything became confusing. And when everything became confusing, he almost fell apart. But God put him in the cave. And here's uh, a few things that we see about what to do when God's will becomes confusing. That's how this applies to you and me. Number one is this, and I'll comment about some of the things we read as we go through this. When God's will becomes confusing, the only way out of the confusion is to ask God. There's, there's no way out of the confusion but to ask God. You can't outrun your problems. You can't outsmart your problems. You can't outcrazy your problems. The only way out of a confusing space in your life is to seek God and to ask him what's happening in your life. And the turnaround you see for David happens in the sentence that I told you to underline in verse ch chapter 22, verse 3, where David goes to the king. He drops off his mother and father. By the way, take note. In a second, we'll go back to that. But it wasn't just his mother and father who came to him, but all of his brothers as well. The same people who ridiculed him when he went to fight Goliath. Now they find him in the cave, and that's going to be relevant in a minute. But here, he the turnaround in David's mind and life is when he says, I, please let them stay with you till I know what God will do for me. The entire chapter 21 is the demise of David's faith. You see him run. You see him lie. You see him act like a madman with spittle coming down of his beard. I mean, it's pretty, you don't know if you feel sorry for the guy or what, but you see him in a place where you want to just wake him up and be like, David, you're the hero of the story. And of course, we know God is the hero of the story. And, and yet it took him to get to that cave to stop, to say, all right, all right, all right, I'm in a confusing space. How am I going to change uh, the direction of my life? And David finally hits the one thing that's going to make all the difference in the world. And he uh, goes to ask what God will do for him. And the truth is that you and I get stuck in chapter 21, don't we? Uh, we run, we hide, we lie. We look for bread and swords and ways to fight our battles when God's will becomes confusing because we don't know what else to do. And so we find ourselves exhausted to the point of becoming madmen in a way when all along the thing that will turn us around is to stop long enough to say, okay, God, I got to stop and see what is it that you are trying to do here? 
Why are you doing this in my life? There must be more happening here. So confusion grows when I try to interpret God's goals or God's ways uh, through the lens of my own present circumstances, all right? You cannot look at your circumstances to determine what God is doing in your life. You've got to fix your eyes on Him to understand your circumstances. Too many of us, we look at what's happening in our life and we kind of go, I don't understand why God fill in the blank. If we could only take our eyes off of our circumstances and fix them on Him, then we make sense of our circumstances. So confusion grows when I interpret God's goals and ways through the lens of my personal present circumstances. Here's another thing that grows confusion. Confusion grows when I try to control my life, myself, when I try to control my life, when it becomes confusing instead of yielding. One of the most important Christian words is the word yielding or surrender. And it is when we are in a confusing place that God wants us to yield, to surrender. And then confusion is overcome intentionally and personally as we seek God. So though 400 men gathered to David, though his brothers came to him and his parents came to him, David needed to get alone with God. And when he goes to the king of Moab, he says, here's my parents. You get a sense that David didn't do this in group, although there's a time for group meetings. There's a time for group prayer meetings, but it comes after we one-on-one, like Jesus constantly did in his life, take time out of our schedule and meet with the Holy One. And so David has this encounter. Interestingly, and if you're a Bible writer, like I like to do, I still laugh at Sam. It, now he gets it, but when he was a little younger, he hated that I would write in my Bible. This is God's word, why write it? But there are things that you need to write. In fact, I would urge you, if you want to jot a couple things that I think will be helpful to you later on tonight after the study, if you go to chapter 21 and write around verse 10, jot down, so my Bible here has, has like, like um, the, uh, here, it says like, David flees to Gath, a little heading. I have written here, Psalm 56, Psalm 56, all right? I jotted it down. And then at the end of verse 15, at the end of chapter 21, jot down Psalms 34. I'll explain it in a minute. And then at the top of chapter 22, here, I have Psalm 142, okay? I think these are important reminders because when you go back home or later or when you go into your Bible tomorrow morning, I want you to take the this book and... And, 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 and look at those Psalms where you jotted them down. And that is thought of the time that David wrote these Psalms. And so in a minute, I'm going to read parts of Psalms 142. And he wrote it. And when you go to Psalm 142, you'll see in your Bibles, it'll say a Psalm of David when he was in the cave in Adullam. All right. Uh, there's one more Psalm that you can jot down, which is Psalm 52. And I have it here midway or towards the end of chapter 22, around verse 18. You can get to that later. We're not going to get that far tonight. But so Psalms 56, Psalms 34, and Psalms 142. If you know anything about the Psalms, those Psalms are the richest Psalms in the entire book of Psalms. And they were written in this season of David's life as he sought the Lord more and more in the midst of his turmoil and his confusion. And when you read the Psalms, you're going to connect the dots as to what God was doing in David's heart. So when God's will becomes confusing, the only way out of the confusion is to seek God. Here's point number two. When God's will becomes confusing, this is so critical to remember, his purposes for me are still perfect. All right, when God's will becomes confusing, God's not confused. His purposes for you are still indeed perfect. God's plans for me are not hijacked by my confusion. God's plans for me are not hijacked by my own awful circumstances. 
God's plans for you listening right now are not hijacked by COVID-19. God's plans and purposes for you are not hijacked by whatever he's doing through the decision of the school board about your kid's school. God's plans are not hijacked for you by uh, the racial problems going on and on and on and on. You think about the things, maybe you were furloughed, maybe you were laid over and you go, man, what am I gonna do for God now? Listen, God's plans are not deterred simply because you're in a confusing and difficult place to be, all right? So when God's will becomes confusing, his purposes for me are still perfect. David is in the pit of what feels like hell to him. He's in a cave, which you can look at a cave and think it's the worst place in the world to be, or you can think that this is the best place in the world to be if God is in the cave with you. And what should be a place of utter confusion is gonna turn around and become a place of anointing it's going to become a place of propelling him into a new phase of his ministry. David, we're going to see in a minute some of the breakthrough that God gives him in this season. But God's plans, not hijacked. All right, God's purposes for me don't change when my circumstances change. God doesn't go, oh my goodness, I didn't see this coming. Now I've got to change. Let's go to plan B for Lena. No, God already knows. God already knew. I look about my life and so much of my story is, has grown out of disappointment and pain. And if you read all of my books, there's sort of big events in my life that looked like the worst things that could have happened to me. I remember when I broke off my first engagement back when I was in my mid-20s and, and I thought my personal life was in shambles and I thought, man, my life is done. I don't know what I'm going to do for God the rest of my life. And it was in that season that God propelled me into teaching the Bible. And I'm telling you, I've seen this again and again a few years ago when I left my church. I felt like the worst thing in the world was happening to me. I didn't know what the future Tina's watching tonight. She can remember. She will tell you. We sat in a restaurant in downtown Arlington Heights, a tapas restaurant. I got to be honest. I am not a fan of tapas. I just think they're too small. I always leave hungry. There's only one that I love. It's the one with, with, with the dates and the bacon around it. And I remember we were eating. I don't even think they had that, that tapas that day. And I don't know why we picked it because we prefer sushi over tapas. But I'm telling you, I, Tina, you can testify and put a high five on the thing. But I remember sitting at the restaurant and tears started going down my face. And I do not cry a lot. And I'm telling you, I said to Tina, and I remember it like it's yesterday. And I said, I think my ministry is done. I couldn't see a world where I could do women's ministry or any ministry outside of the context of the local church and how I had lived my life in ministry up to that point. And you know that, that, that in that year following that dinner where the tears came down my face, God opened a venue for me to start doing radio at Moody. And it was in that season that we started the work in Lebanon with Syrian refugees. It's a miraculous story. It's more detailed than that. I won't go into all of the details, but it came out of a time when God's will looked confusing to me. My circumstances looked like they were changing, but God was constant, steady, in control, and was simply using the pain and the disappointment in my life to propel me to the next chapter in my life. And when you read Psalms 142 and you read David's plea to God in that point of his life, you'll read these words, with my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. This is a man who writes this as 400 people that nobody wants have aligned around him 
and they look like they're not going to be of help to him, and yet God changes his view, and those very things that he writes about become the fruit of his future ministry. He becomes the warrior with a, a, a battalion of, of soldiers that would go on and defeat. In fact, this brings us to, to the third point, which, which is kind of the concluding thought here. When God's will becomes confusing, start looking because breakthrough is coming. Start looking because breakthrough is coming. You might think this confusing, confusing place is the end of the road. You might look at your cave and see nothing but dark walls and barely an opening. And you don't know how you're going to move to the next chapter. But listen, breakthrough is on the way. You say, how? Well, I got to be honest. Uh, when you read David's story, I, 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 I challenge the definition of what we have concluded breakthrough to be. We look at our lives when we're stuck or in a confusing place or in a place where we don't like, and we have an idea of what breakthrough will look like. In fact, if I, if I told you right now to stop everything that we're doing for a minute and take a piece of paper and get a pen and write down what breakthrough would look like in your life, the odds are you and I would write something that might not be what we'll get. See, we have a narrow idea of what breakthrough looks like. But for David's life, maybe humanly, we might have said, well, breakthrough is... Saul dies, trips over a rock and dies, and David comes and becomes the king. Or, or Saul has an awakening and recognizes that God's will is God's will and brings David and invites him back to the kingdom, and they have a reconciliation, and, and the wife plays a part in it, and they live happily after. We could come up with so many scenarios, but it's not the breakthrough that God gives. In fact, it's unknown how long the season from the cave of Adullam until the, the, the reign of David as king. He reigned at 30. Uh, the thought is anywhere from one and a half. There's some verses later on in Samuel that indicate that it was at least a year and a half, but up to maybe seven years, seven years, where he was traveling in the caves and then moving about and developing this group of soldiers that would become this, this, this group of warriors that would defeat town after town of the Philistines. David was strong to begin with, and after the season in the cave, God would propel him into becoming not just a soldier, but a warrior, a leader, and these people were coming to him, and his, his strength was even growing, and in fact, David would have two opportunities to kill Saul. Once Saul comes into the cave, David is there. He takes his knife, and he rips a piece of the, of the, of the robe of Saul. He has the opportunity to kill him, but he doesn't kill him because he recognizes that God had at one point anointed Saul. And by then, he had so much confidence in God that this man who acted like a madman in 1 Samuel 21 becomes a man who refuses to touch to lay a hand on God's anointed. Why? Because he's so confident. That the same God who anointed him when he was a shepherd out with a sheep, the same God who helped him against Goliath, the same God who got him through his madman episode, is the same God who is going to get him to the king, to the, to the, to the throne, if it was his will, in his time and in his way. And so breakthrough came for David, but it came in a way that he might not have predicted. I see some, uh, some other places of breakthrough. The more you lean into God and his ways, the more breakthrough you can expect. And you say, what kind of breakthrough? Well, I tell you, breakthrough came in the form of healed relationships. I told you that his brothers in the beginning of chapter 22, it says, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to meet him. He goes and hides in a cave. He thinks he's alone. And who's the first to show up? His own brothers. Those were the men who laughed at him when he went against Goliath. So there's some breakthrough right there. Did David expect that his biggest 
fans and his biggest supporters would be his very brothers who ridiculed him out of jealousy just a couple chapters before, and yet God gives breakthrough there. Breakthrough came in the form of personal transformation. We see David utterly transformed, but from freaking out, from, from lack of courage to a brave man who's willing to, to humbly give up his, his opportunity to kill the king, and you see this personal transformation happening in the heart of David, who is no wonder called a man after God's own heart. And so the more you lean into God in his ways, the less you'll put God in a box. So much of our pain in life is because we've got God in a box and we think, man, if God does this and that, then I'll believe that he's God. And if God acts this way, then my trust in him will grow. And we don't give God space to be God. And the story of David reminds us that it is when we find ourselves in a place where we can utterly do nothing, that God just breaks up the box and does, if you go through and read chapter 22, 23, and 24, and you see this, this mode of what happens in David's life, I'm telling you, it will encourage you, if you're in a place of confusion, to say, okay, God, I've got my hands off the wheel right now. Jesus, take the wheel, is the old song. And even I, a girl from Lebanon, know that that's, there's truth there. And if the country singers were able to recognize that the you and I can recognize that there's truth, to saying, okay, God, I can't do this, but you're the one who brought me this far, and you're gonna get me through it. So the more you lean into God and his ways, the more surprising your breakthrough will be. Hey, uh, what kind of breakthrough are you looking for? Maybe it's time you redefine your breakthrough. Maybe it's time you stop putting so many conditions on God and, and admit to him, as David did, that yes, you're confused, and maybe life isn't going as you expected it to be, but that like David, maybe you would take time and write a Psalms to God and a song of rejoicing to him and say, Lord, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm gonna trust you to get me through it. And who knows what kind of breakthrough God might be working in your life. And so when God's will becomes confusing, the only way out is to seek God. Are you seeking him today? When God's will becomes confusing, his purposes for me are still perfect. Find strength in that. Plant your feet on that truth today. And number three, when God's will becomes confusing, start looking because breakthrough is on the way. Man, I don't know about you, but I need these reminders week after week after week. I'm in a, um, we're all, I think globally, we're all in a place where uh, I think we can confidently say that life has not turned out as we thought it would. And some things are going to be for the better and some things look like disappointments right now. But I wonder how many of us will look back in a year and five years and 10 years and say, man, it was a hard year, but it was a life-changing year. Don't you want it to be that? I know I do. And so we're gonna move into a time of prayer here. There's much to pray about. When I ask God to intercede, we believe in the living God, the same God who worked on behalf of David is working on our behalf today. I mean, think about that, to even say these words, that God is working on our behalf. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of everything we see, the beauty that we see, the everything. He's in control of everything, and yet he tells us that he works on our behalf, and he does it in love, and he does it consistently, and he does it um, not because he has to, but because he wants to. 